Hello and welcome to another edition of um, Making Things Better and Making Better Things or Doing Things Better and Doing Better Things. I keep changing the name of it. Um, today's podcast is, um, I, they're all lovely, but I really enjoyed this conversation with Matthew. Um, a really fascinating guy having done a whole load of really interesting work and, 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 and then settling into shoes, settling into into making the things that, that we wear every day and doing so in a way that is, is uh, utterly beautiful but also less harmful than, than so many, many other people. Um, really interesting and rich and inquisitive mind. Um, so I hope you enjoy it and um, settle down. And, and uh, listen up. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, that's good. Okay, like it. okay good. So, um, it's a rainy day in Soho. Um, I'm sat in the chapel of the House of St Barnabas, which is my go-to place now for podcasts. Um, it's a bit squeaky on the floor, Matt. Oh, so I remember. I, I keep move. forgetting that. Um, and I'm sat with um, Matthew Bagwell. Um, Matthew, tell me about yourself. Wow, that is an existential question. Um, I'm a shoemaker. Um, for the last two years, I've run a company called Seven Feet Apart with a co-founder, uh, Ian Cartwright, and a small team. We make shoes. Um, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a runner. Brilliant. Which ones of those things do you love the most? Well, either being a husband or a father, frankly. The rest is kind of... Uh, a means to an end. Yeah. So I love making shoes, love running a business. Uh, it's incredibly all-consuming, um, and I run probably to balance out. Is it your relief? Amounts of focus. Yeah, I run to meditate. Yeah. So some people walk, some people do yoga. I walk and do yoga. I wonder, as I spoke to Jim about recently. Wandering. Yeah, Jim Marsden. The very good and beautiful, <coughs> wonderful man, Jim Marston. So, yeah, we, I, I do wonder and I do sort of, like yourself, do a little bit of bending and breathing yeah. and all that good stuff. But when I really want to explore what's going on in my head, then I run. Um, but I see that as a means to an end. It's a balance to the business. Um, Have you always run? Yeah, from a child. So I started running when I was about... 13 or 14, I used to run to school. It's about six or seven miles away. Um, I was crap at sport, to be very honest, Mark. Hey. I was crap at football. I, I didn't like football. I didn't like rugby. Um, I used to get chastised if I went home with muddy kit. That's a deep childhood thing. So I didn't do any by, contacts. By your, was that by your mother? Yes. Okay. But I don't blame her for that. That was just where she was at the time. So I didn't do any sort of contact sports, wasn't really that engaged, but what I would do is run or cycle. So yeah. I'm also a cyclist. And uh, yeah, I find running, um, I can just do it. I can keep going. So this weekend I just completed two ultra marathons, for example. I saw that on, on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, that was kind of crazy. And you were worried about being able to walk today. I'm fine, actually. So um, that's far? my vegan diet. How far? Are you vegan as well? Yes. Let's talk Which about is that ironic as a leather manufacturer, but... Yeah. We can talk about that in a minute. Okay. I, I've got this. I've got this. In, I always like to start with the childhood. It always fascinates me because right, we, often, we often get stuck there, and, we, and, we, and, and it's what makes us. If we don't get stuck there, 
this image of this, I remember what I was like at 13, right? I, it was 1981, the Human League were top of the charts, Soft Cell I loved, but I was a bit embarrassed about loving because they were quite camp, yeah. you know, very camp. <laughs> uh, Culture Club came along and confused the fuck out of everybody. The idea of me running the four miles to, to school fills me with retrospective embarrassment. Right. That's a brave thing to do when you're 13. I probably had more things to concern myself with than being embarrassed. I think, if I'm looking back at my childhood, um, I didn't grow up with my father. Okay. And so I grew up in a very female-orientated environment. Um, I ran because it was pretty much the only good thing. that I, It was the thing I thought I was good at. Um, it wasn't expensive. We didn't have any money. It gave me freedom. It gave me space away from the home. I was quite good at it. So I ran. I just kept running. Forrest Gump-like. And one could argue that, um, yeah, I've been running away from something all my life. <laughs> well, you know, you've gone exactly where I was going to go, and that's, that's brilliant. Because I, one of my favourite albums, there's two albums that, that are the same, uh, Gil Scott Heron, I'm new here, mm-hmm. and then he he remade it with Jamie from the XX. Yeah. To, uh, we're new here, both of them, utterly brilliant. And there's some amazing songs on there. The one about his grandmother um, lifting everybody she met just a little bit higher was is heartbreaking. But my favourite song on those albums is a song called Running, and it says, "I always feel like running, never away, because there's no such place." And I went and did some screen printing a couple of years ago and my wife did a really lovely screen print about love or being where she wanted to be. I can't remember, I should remember and I I don't. And and I did, I always feel like running. And she she was was marginally irritated with me because it felt like it was running away, I think. And I couldn't work out why I did it and I didn't work out, I couldn't work out why this song meant so much to me until I started running again. Because I ran as a kid. Not distance, not like you. Around fast for a short distance right. and flamboyantly. Okay. <laughs> um, showboat. Don't go changing. Showboaty, right? <laughs> exactly, don't go changing. But I ran recently, um, after first time being injured for a long, long time. And Matt, the freedom, the rain on my chest, the, the air as it entered my lungs, the, the discomfort of the pain, every single thing about it, I fucking loved. Yeah. I understand. I loved it. So tell me what you feel. Tell me what you think about when you're running and tell me what you feel when you're running. To coin the phrase. I know that I'm strong enough to carry on, so it doesn't really matter how far it is. Yeah. I mean, there is a limit. About 58 kilometres, I've worked out, (laughs) is approximately the limit, depending on the day. I'm not running away from anything. I guess I'm running to myself. Yeah. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me. I find it incredibly cathartic. It's it's a meditation, without a doubt. So I run to basically stabilise, to find a norm. I know that I have strength. So I'd be quite happy to admit that I have a... I guess I suffer from depression. Yeah. I don't get depressed when I run. You know, I see things, I breathe, I'm calm. 
and I have strength. And so I guess I'm attaching myself to that. So when I'm at my best, I'm running. When I don't run, things can get a little unstable in life generally. So that's why I do it. That's fascinating. That's, so it's beyond running as a safety valve, which in times of high stress, I just want to run or bike, yep. but, but mainly, mainly run. It's beyond that. This is, this is running as maintenance. This is running as... It's about resilience. For me, um, it's about attaching myself to something core. And, and, when, and when did it stop being... Um, when did it... St- I've just realised I've left my phone on, on phone, so someone could actually um, ring me. Let me turn on. <laughs> um, that would be great. Really interesting. Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> it's all off now. So when did it stop being a journey to work and start being a journey to Matt? Uh, I guess um, more recently. Frankly, so I've always done it. I went through um, relatively competitive triathlons and, and various marathons and things like that. Uh, whether it was for charitable gain or uh, just for the hell of it, I think in the last two or three years it's been to reconnect with myself. And I don't think that's anything to do with my age. I think it's just to do with a mind state. Um, I've. I, I also you know, I do practice breathing and I do practice other forms of meditation and yoga, but I find it my it is it is my medicine. Put it that way. And wow, I thought we were going to talk about shoes. <laughs> we, are, we are going to talk about shoes in a minute, and there's a lovely segue which I, I'll, I'll pick up in a second. Um, but I'm really interested in this the the whole idea of of running the distances that you run mm-hmm. fills me on one, one hand with fear because I'm a sprinter I'm all, sure. I'm all fast twitch explosive yeah. jumping Four, nearly 400 eight. maximum I guess exactly exactly yeah. and, and loving a 400 actually yeah the thing about the 400 for me because I was quick at 100 I can't remember what my best 11, 6 something like that 222, 1 which is fast yeah it is um, long jumping nearly 7 metres, 680. Um, 400 used to kill me. And I probably only got as fast as 52, which is not fast. It's not fast at all. But I remember collapsing on the finish line in training and just thinking, I want to nail this distance. I want to nail this distance. This, is, this feeling of being empty, yeah. of being utterly spent. I never got in the 100, the 200 or the long jump. I only ever got it in the 400, which, which nudges me towards longer distances. And I, I ran a marathon a few years ago, and, I'm, and I really love... And that's where I wanted to go, actually. I really love the training for that. Yeah. It's very time-consuming. It's quite a selfish endeavour um, when you've got a family. But I remember running once. I was trying to do, like, a 22-mile training run, about a month out from the marathon. It was my, my last long run. Mm. And I remember getting to <clears throat> 17 miles, running through the lanes in Leicestershire, and thinking, I don't remember running through Huncut. Right. I don't remember running through Stony Stanton. How did I get here? Yeah. And at that point that I realised I realized it was a meditation. It can be. It can be. It's a, it's a mental sport at that distance. When you get to 55 kilometres, <laughs> that's extraordinary, Matt. It is. And, you know, I ran with somebody who did 100 on the same day. So... 
you know, there's there's always people who can go faster and and longer. I think what happened was I, I ran marathons, and I got to a point where I I hit a target, and I was like, this is going to be hard to go faster. Two and a half. Oh God, I wish uh, <laughs> three and a half. So that's still fast. But I've done things like Boston and I've done London. Yeah. So I've I've been to some big runs, um, but I knew that to your point, it's quite selfish. Uh, for it would have been selfish for me to have trained to go faster. Yeah. And it's quite stressful, and it's not particularly great on my physiognomy. My 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 leg starts to sort of create pain at about eighteen miles if I'm running fast on flat roads. Yeah. So I gave up. I said, that's it. I'm never running again. I saw Fatboy Slim on my last ever marathon at Brighton. I stopped for two minutes to take a selfie, which is ridiculous, but still did my best ever time. Um, I don't think he knew that he was part of that story. <laughs> he does he is now. now. <laughs> and still got the selfie. And, uh, Norman Cook down there in Brighton. And um, I said, okay, that's, that's it. I'm never doing it again. And actually what I've decided to do is rather than go faster, just go longer. And to your point... You get to about 18k, and then it abstracts. Yeah. Then you find yourself at 30k or 40k, and then you kind of that little thought comes into your head: Well, you just run a marathon. A lot of people can't do that, or would choose not to do that. But you can either carry on or not. It's a question of time at that point. It's like, well, maybe I should do the washing up, or maybe I should go home and and pack the car, or make some shoes, or whatever it is. But you just keep running. That, that's extra, it's extraordinary, um, and the the pain I, I, in, during my marathon race, I suffered significant foot problems. It was a disaster. I hated it, and I finished in five hours. And I could, and I kicked myself. Right during the training, when I was training at like three fifty for the marathon, that's right. where I was going to probably hit under four hours anyway. The the, the discomfort in my feet was was big the discomfort in my <laughs> mind was bigger well it's always i think the mind first the one for, let me give you a, a moment in the, this last run so i get to 58k and i've had a couple of difficult moments on that run it was into a 50 mile an hour tailwind uh, sorry uh, headwind. headwind so i'm basically running backwards uh, as we all were um, and it's um, it's across the Jurassic Coast, so it's as hilly as fuck. Uh, 2,500 2, meters of vertical climb. This is kind of Lyme Regis, yeah, yeah. Wanage, uh, yeah. It's that exactly. Yeah, and up over those bits of rock with holes in that I don't know the name of, and um, beautiful scenery. Not that I was looking at it, and uh, I'd had a couple of dark moments, um, but got through it. Got to 58k and stopped where they feed you. Technically, it's called lunch. Yeah, but essentially just cramming, and as a vegan. You know, it's pretty difficult because you're basically being offered Cabri's Dairy Milk and Haribo yeah. and another good food. They did put on a good spread and some vegan stuff, but it's kind of hard to refuel. And uh, my wife went off to speak to the organisers and said, look, what are, what are his options? So I had another marathon to go. I'd already done one and a half. So I had another marathon to go. I'd have been running probably into the dark possible it was going to be off-road um sort of you know it's going to be trail running or i could stop and quit i don't really like quitting mark um because i have to go back i've yeah. done it before when i quit i have to go back and do it again whether it's yeah. in business or with a, a friend or whatever it is you keep going at these things or i tend to 
And the, but there was an option, which is stop, take a break, and come back tomorrow and run another marathon. Well, actually run another ultra marathon. Yeah. And it was the first time I just let myself accept that I'd done enough competitively. And for me, that was a huge moment. How did that feel? Fucking great. Did it? Just to, to go, okay, well, I, I'm not running... I'm not running for Mark Shader. I'm not running for all my friends. I'm not running for accolades. I'm running for myself. And I've done enough today. You know, I didn't, I didn't need the he did 100k in a day badge. I'm not criticising anyone who gets them. No, but but for me, it was just a real, it was a huge moment, which was you've done enough today. You've been good enough today. You've been healthy enough today. Go home. But, and an, that was a wonderful moment. There is an element of ego attached to the badges. Of course. I, I'm not knocking that, because ego is not always a bad thing at nope. all. Um, but the freedom that comes with being comfortable with what you've done must be massive. And I think I relate that to my business and to my parenting and to my relationships generally. Yeah. I guess I'm coming to a point where I'm trying to find that acceptance that I'm good enough yeah. and that I've been sufficient and that I can stop taking a break. break. I'm not talking about taking a break from my relationships or my business, no, but yeah. just that you can pause, reflect, recharge and, and then go again. I think it was harder when I was younger. I was incredibly competitive and in all aspects of life. So I find that has been incredibly cathartic and, and perhaps running is helping me find that in more general terms. That's amazing. And to bridge from there into, into what, what you do for a living, there's loads of the clumsy bridge, which I might even use. I am going to use that. Let's use a clumsy bridge. What shoes do you run in? Well... Uh, I run a pair of, they're called Speed Goats. They're Hocker 1-1s. Yeah, he was going to say they're Hoka's Hockers, yeah. Or Hocker, or Hoka. Yeah, they're, they're a, I, think they're a, I think they're probably Australian or Vietnamese. I've certainly made in Vietnam. Uh, certainly a uh, Far Eastern brand who've come out of nowhere and, and taken, I think, the running community by storm. They're astonishing. I've got a pair. I've got a, I can't remember. Mine are, mine are Speed something, but they're not Speed right. Goats. That, mine's got a little rocker in them, which I don't really doesn't suit my foot. Okay. But the the cushion and the nearly flat footbed, but not quite flat. I think it's a yeah. three mil rise. I can't remember drop. Sorry. Yeah. Um, really suit me. They really. I can't go with a flat shoe. Yeah. I'm just I'm, and I'm too weighty to go with a minimal shoe. That weight's dropping. But I'm a massive fan of that shoe, as I am. And I've just discovered um, Ultra. Yep, I know them. Which are, which are flat, there's no drop. Yeah. But they've also got a chunky sole. And I think you may have recommended them to me, but I'd already started running these got, in. Got the hockers, yeah. And, you know, I, 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 I bought them in a shop. I didn't want to buy them online, which is ironic, because I run an online business, but I wanted the shoe there and then. Yeah. So I bought an 11 and a half, and I'm a 9. Yeah. So you normally run a 10 or a 10 and a half. I ran an 11 and a half. But I have no blisters no black toes, I have no foot pain. Now, I, I actually put that down to inflammation and my vegan diet. So I'm not militant vegan, but no. I, I got up the following day after running two back-to-back ultras 
and could walk upstairs and downstairs. And that is amazing. Which I, I put down to diet. When did you go vegan? About a year ago. And because I went about, I, I, I eat eggs from my chickens. Yep, that's and if, fine. And if I'm out and well, I'm, you make your own call. But I, I would, I would eat my own chickens' eggs if yeah. I had chickens. And occasionally, someone serves me meat and I'll eat it. But I feel dreadful about it. I miss fish loads, actually, right. oily mackerel particularly. Um, I felt so much better when I went vegan. Right. And I feel so much Why worse now. I cheat now. I cheat a little bit. <laughs> Why do I think that is? I think. Um, there's loads of ways to answer this question. I'm going to answer it in a way that is not scientific at all. I think the last thing an animal feels when it dies in the way that we kill animals now is utter fear. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm eating the hormones of panic and fear. And I can't see that being good for me. I think I don't think it's a saturated fat thing because I've never been that way around. Um, I, think I, I think I make better choices instead of the meat. Right. I think I eat a whole, on the whole, occasionally I have a dirty vegan burger, on the whole I eat a whole food vegan diet, and I think that's a better diet. I I think it's less to do with less meat and more to do with better good other stuff. Yeah. I suspect. I would concur with that. I mean, I eat vegetables all the time. I eat very few processed items. There's practically no sugar in my diet. Yeah. I think that has a massive impact. I'd also agree with you that the biological uh, chemistry of meat, uh, unless you're sort of rearing it yourself and killing it yourself, in a way, um, I I tend to feel that if it's in mass production, then it's going to be a relatively negative end-of-life experience. You're absolutely right. You've probably seen the video. I wouldn't eat myself at the end of my life. Do you know no. what I mean? It's like, that's got to be a fearful thing. So what's going on? Exactly. So I, I kind of get that. And, and small-scale meat production on your farm is never is not the problem we're fighting here. It's mass-scale production and it's mass-scale cruelty. And you probably saw the video that came out from one of the animal, I think it was Arm, one of the animal um, um, rights charities in the States, uh, tie up between Coca-Cola, who are clients, mm-hmm. and, um, and, a, and a mass farm, mass, and the calves are being kicked in the face, and like, the milk that they produce, the milk those cows produce cannot be good, because the cows are being beaten, it cannot, it cannot be yeah. good. Yeah. So, that's something that's fascinating, and the shoes... Veganism aside. Yeah, it's an interesting movement, um, and one that we'll, I'll do another podcast on at some point, but... It's an interesting, particularly if you're a, a leather goods... I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I I think um, both Ian and I are pretty aligned. We have to get out of leather-based product production as fast as we can. Um, That's certainly my point of view, and Ian also agrees that 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 would be a positive thing to do. However, we've got to find the appropriate replacement. So a rush to... Plastic is not necessarily a better solution. It's just a different solution. It may be less cruel, but from a sustainability perspective, not necessarily better. I, so yeah. so both he and I are um, working hard to find for our next product the most sustainable solution that we can, whether it's in the rubber solution for the sole unit or for the uppers and also the way that it's packaged and where it's made and how far it has to travel. Um, so it's total life and also it's longevity and, and end of life. So 
I, I think that we have a responsibility to do that as a brand. Yeah. I'm not anti-brands, I'm not anti-consumption. I'm pro better consumption, more mindful consumption generally. So I'm a minimalist um, and would want that people buy better things but less of them. Yeah. And that relates to my shoes, but it can relate to anything. And so as a, a, as a manufacturer, I have a responsibility to make that as easy as possible for people and as widely available. And also to demand it from the supply chain. They yeah. will change. Um, they're changing much faster than um, even we thought they would. And as the, the consumers have a choice, and they, their choice is through their wallets, basically. It's a powerful thing, your money. Totally. And, and, and it's more powerful than politics, in my mind. To, well, we, and, and, we're, and we're seeing that. And the, you know, the current plastic mood phase that we're in is really interesting, and I, and I get it. And it's not all right, but I don't care whether people are scientifically accurate. I just want them to feel that they can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And we'll sort the incongruities out later. Plastic is perfect for some things and utterly dreadful for others. And it's certainly not the right thing to put in the ocean. But when you, when <laughs> for a picture, I, I have a, an apocryphal story of being asked about plastic-free fish packaging on my Facebook group, which is I've told already, and it's just ridiculous. But my favourite was a cartoon today where somebody buys a fish and says, "Where's the plastic bag?" And they say, "Have it in a plastic bag because it's already inside." And it's like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, look at this. The fish is eating plastic." But you're eating the fucking fish, you idiot. Uh, the right. second, the second biggest challenge to the sea life, to sea life is overfishing. The third is ocean debris, and the first is climate change. And that's where we need to focus our attention right now. Yeah, and you know, there's the argument that the best shoe business I could have created would have been no shoe business. Uh, but I also believe um, that there needs to be a cycle of, of economic prosperity, and I need to create jobs. I'd like to do that here. I'd like to do it in Portugal. I'd like to do it... Um, much more than I do. Currently, we're a company of six full-time employees and probably affect the lives of two or three hundred people in terms of production, Yeah, positively. Um, I would love that to be in the tens of thousands. Um, and, and so that's the ambition. Our job is to create a better business. Which is lovely. And you could be making shoes and you could be making something else. It's about the better business. Uh, yeah, that's why we did it. When we, when we sat down and thought about the business... Both he and I, we, we hold on to three tenants, I guess. We would call them um, beautiful, brilliant, and better. And they're somewhat interchangeable. Um, beautiful, obviously, because we make products and they're aesthetic. And it's about, that's about desire and um, people wanting something that's attractive. And it's about tradition and it's about skill. It's the reason why I use people like Jim Marston to take my photography, because it's beautiful. I like it being analog and I like it being slow. And I like it being considered. I'm not suggesting that people who shoot digital cannot do any of those things, because they can. But I choose to use silver and light and film and Jim, who's beautiful in himself. So for me, that, that's an important tenet. It's why we go analogue. Brilliant is about performance, and um, it's about sustainability in the product so that it can last and that it's comfortable and it's anatomical and ergonomic and all of those good things. And then better is about fairness and transparency. And I think that's been the hardest thing to deal with as a business because we are really fucking small and the industries that we're a part of, like fashion, are really big. And fast. And fast and cheap. 
and um, and challenging and when you try to swim against the tide which some of the most admirable brands um, that I love and you love do um, it's not easy and so then you've got the balance between the long game and the short game yeah and I met Tim Little the other day who yeah. um, is a wonderful guy and prior to making my own shoes I only wore Grunson's and it was an absolute honor to meet Tim and we met him at his shop on Lambs Conduit Street and he sort of talked about the startup dilemma and he basically sort of said okay well either you need time or money and if you've got a lot of one you don't need as much of the other so beautifully simply put yeah, it's true um, and as he said regrettably you don't have very much time or money um, so you know, it, it's, it's a real challenge to be a better business and idealistic when you also have to try to be economic. And there's a, there's a tension in business between those two things. That's interesting. And we'll, we'll talk about how you, how you square that in a minute. I'm really interested in your, the first pair of shoes you ever made or designed. When was that? 2016, probably November. So, so recent. Yeah, for me, uh, my co-founder has been a managing director of shoe businesses, um, two particularly, um, Hudson Shoes, and then prior to that, Base London, which is quite, and that's quite I, modish. I, I, I know them both, both, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he's been in the shoe industry, but not necessarily directly um, designing shoes, he's obviously commissioned that in the past. Um, I'd never made any product. I'd been a consultant and a designer. I'd made stuff, but I'd never made something in a box. That's what I really wanted to do. And how did it feel? Awesome. Oh, it's like, it's almost like creating, you know, someone else. A child. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not quite, I mean, they're not, they're quite dissimilar, but, when you get your first product back, um, you can feel that when you make your first loaf of bread or you pour your first ever pint. I'm sure people experience that. You go, I yeah. made this, you know, I toiled, yeah. I grew that tomato. These people who make sort of, you know, their own vegetables and get these rather puny fucking vegetables that For are real. First potatoes I ever dug up in my career. The sweetest the potatoes you've ex ever eaten. Exactly that. And that's how it feels when you make your own shoe, right? You kind of go, okay, um, it wasn't beautiful. It looked like a football boot, actually. It was quite um, retro and uh, really quite ugly. I've still got the photographs of it. Um, but it was mine. What's that Dutch brand that made shoes that look like football? Really wide. Um, oh, I don't know. Oh, they're like camper, but nicer. Bigger. <laughs> wide. I mean, I love camper. I'm wearing camper now, but they're, they're bigger and they're wider. And there's everything about them just screams teddy bear's foot right. for me. Right. Um, but they look like football boots. I'm a big yeah, fan I mean, of football ours, boots. Ours did. And um, our lives could have been very different if we'd launched that shoe. But uh, you, know, you get this first prototype and then you make some four or five others before we made... The, the shoe that we kind of basically is the stalwart of our brand. It's a good feeling. And that's the seven? Yeah, this it's the 172 original. It's basically a white tennis, or it's not just white, but it's a tennis silhouette. It's a classic sneaker. We kind of threw the kitchen sink at it. I didn't really understand the economics of business when I did it. Um, I certainly didn't understand the economics of pricing products when I did it. So whenever somebody said, well, which one would you like, the cheap leather or the expensive leather, I just picked expensive everything 
and top spec everything. Um, I, my box had to be had a 60 mil lid so that it had that apple effect when yeah, you sort of the pull suction. it off. Yeah. All of that. And then I realised that I suddenly had to learn what entry margin was, which meant we didn't <laughs> fucking make any. Um, but I was proud of it. I, I kind of felt that if you're going to make a product, make a really, really, really good one. Yeah. I don't want to make shit stuff. That's somebody else's job. And I, I think that's true of our marketing and our communications and particularly our customer services. You know, we, we try to create the brand that we would want to interact with. It's pretty straightforward, to be honest, Mark. I, do you know what? I think you're right. And, and having touched your brand and seen your brand, everything you do is beautiful. It's absolutely it's just, beautiful. It's pretty straight. Like today, we sent out an email offering people a 10% discount for Father's Day. I saw it. And I don't like doing promotion. And I've got brands that I respect who never go on promotion. But um, we are not those brands. Sure. Uh, we have to do it. We economically at our scale right now need to do it but somebody contacted us about four o'clock saying i just bought a pair of sneakers yesterday and i've just got this email in my inbox so i'm going to be a bit cheeky can i have my 10 percent what we will probably do in fact i know we'll do it is give everybody who bought sneakers this week their 10 percent we do that all the time so whenever we go into sale we go back like four days or five days in history and give everybody the sale price because we kind of think that just pisses you off. Otherwise, yeah. you can't go back historically throughout time. You have to give it a cut-off point. But that's what a nice business does. It's a really dis- a, simple decision-taking... There's a big brand that does this, Matt. It's Gap. Gap, well, they used to do this. Right. I think it was like three weeks before sale, they would drop to sale. I can't remember. Right. But it meant that when... They were a different brand to the one they were. But it meant when my kids were little, and I've got a grandkid now, so it's a long time ago, it's the only place we went to buy clothes. And they were expensive then, yeah. but we only went there because they looked after us. And, and you know, your sneakers are, are, are they're beautiful. Thanks. They're brilliant. The JOs that I've got are some of the most beautiful shoes that I own. I love the way they feel. I love the way they look. People will come back to you because your product's good, but they'll come back to you because they like you. Yeah, and, and that, that hopefully will be true for as long as possible. You know, people ask, why are we in it? When I started the business, I wanted to just create a better world. Mm. When Ian started the business, he just wanted a house on the, a house on the coast and a Porsche 911. <laughs> I live in Brighton and I've sold my Porsche, but I also want those things for his. Did you sell it to Ian? No, <laughs> I didn't actually. But I've, I've had those things and I wish that... For him, he can have them too. I, I think that was when we started. Now, uh, we just both want to create an economically viable business and sustain it for as long as possible. Whether or not there comes an opportunity to capitalise on that, um, I, I certainly think that we both want to be a part of Seven Feet Part. Yeah. Um, because what excites us most is, is making really fucking great experiences. Yeah. You know, I make a product... But that's just part of the story. The rest of it, the whole customer service and the conversations you can have with people and the relationships you can actually develop with them are genuinely valuable. And I don't want that to stop. So as and when we take in further investments, we've had two rounds of investment. But I would hope that we always have a vision that can be sustained in, in the way that brands like Patagonia have had sure. and still have as they scale. 
um, yeah, we're not we're not in it just to make a quick buck. And I think that that's a, a question for many small businesses, which is sort of being honest about why you're doing it. As long as we get paid sufficiently and we can create a good culture around the company, then that's good business. Have you looked at Tim? Um, go back to the to, and uh, number one that we need more people like you. We need more businesses like this. Um, and there's that scale cost, scale price, time thing, which I'll come to in a second. But just picking up on the point you made earlier about moving away from um, cow's leather or or, um, yeah. or, 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 or leather in, in general, have you looked at pineapple? And, and have you yeah, looked we've, at... we've. I mean, the good thing is that you know you you can go to trade shows and you'll get bombarded with sustainable materials, and there's a lot of innovation and it's accelerating. Um, but it is going to be fueled by consumer demand. So we've launched our first um, microfiber um, pair of trainers. Um, the next pair of trainers won't even use microfiber. Microfiber is a plastic. Yeah. So it's less cruel. Yeah. Um, I've got a T-shirt actually. It, it, I must send you one that says I don't make bloody sneakers. <laughs> um, I can't wear it because obviously I do make bloody sneakers. But there will come a point at which we won't. The, the materials in, say, the next two years are going to take a quantum leap forward. Yeah. Um, but it's only part of the story. So it, it's pretty straightforward to find um, sustainable materials. But we want something that is comparable to leather in terms of its performance. And, and we're still a little bit of, of distance away from that. Yeah, I've not seen anything close to yeah, it but, yeah. I, honestly, if if I was running through the fields with you, Mark, chasing after your chickens or my own cows, and then consuming them in a responsible way, and then using those materials to make leather shoes, they would be great shoes. Sure, agreed. The problem is the mass production and the byproduct of pollution and and cruelty more generally. So that's why we're kind of rushing away from it. Um, it's still difficult for people like us, small brands, to make demands both in production and in the sort of uh, third-party supply chains. But we're doing what we can. And I think as long as many brands do it, you know, look at the speed of change. Two years ago, we would not have been having this conversation. You, you're, de- you're absolutely well, you, right. You might have, but I don't think a lot of people would have been having the foresight to have a conversation about plastics or the food that they consume or, 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 or climate change you or, know. Or, or product um, the, the sort of provenance of product I agree the, it's becoming mass market look at Greg's vegan sausages for uh, example yeah yeah uh, the dirty dirty vegan food but it tastes amazing yeah and I look at it and they seem to be the only people who are proliferating the high street so I go well more power in a sense more power to you um for being at least they're, opportunistic. They're a very interesting brand. That they've, yeah. they've changed significantly. They're led very, very well. And their social media is astonishing. Yeah, I've seen some pretty great marketing from them. Um, so I think if, if lots of brands can unite around a common theme and a common idea without sort of being too worthy about it or too preachy about it, then we'll get there. The way that we'll work as seven feet apart is just to become sort of like the Waitrose of sneakers. Uh, we're a premium brand, so we're an investment purchase, and I think people will kind of outsource the provenance to us. 
I so they'll just expect us to do everything right, yeah, and then they'll just consume. So it, it, it's, I was going to talk to you about where the future lies with you and where you sit in relation to the other <coughs> ethical premium brand. I can never pronounce it right. Vega, 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 them. Yeah, the, the, I don't like the shoes, but I've not worn any, so I can't comment. I just, oh, this is going to sound dreadful. Feels like virtue signalling when they're on when they're on some people's feet, and I'm sure that it is. Um, but I'm kind of a believer in that that's okay too. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's a bit like people who all bought their Teslas soonest, or all have the the, the Nissan cheap version of the equivalent or whatever it was. What was that car that all of the cabs are the you know the ones? Oh, I mean? the Prius. Yeah, the Prius, right? Yeah. It's it's a it's it's an outward signalling of an inward sort of mess or a message that people are projecting with that stuff. But I'm okay with it, right? That's yeah. kind of a, for me. That's like conscious capitalism or cons- conscious consumerism. If somebody's got a V down the side of their sneaker, um, I'm I'm happy with that because at least they're putting the money into a great company. Is it the most comfortable sneaker in the world? That's for the consumer to decide. I've never worn them. All I've got to do, I won't put a V down the side of my sneakers um, because that's not what we do. We're kind of minimalist, even in branding. The unbranding is delicious. But that that, that draws its own audience. We don't do shiny and we don't do branded and we haven't got a fucking great big tick. And I've got huge respect for Phil Knight and what he did. I've got a huge respect for Vasia. They they have created a path which a lot of people are travelling down. So if somebody wants a conscious product, then they are probably well enough informed to find my advertising. So I'm kind of cool with it, you know. That's interesting. You know what I mean? I'm kind of like, okay, well, yeah. it's a bit like hairdressers or coffee shops. If there's one opened, then three or four open because that's where people go for coffee. And it's driving demand for coffee. So I'm kind of cool with it. Yes, they have made a brand which a lot of influencers and people in the public eye are wearing to basically say, I'm, I'm conscious. It's, it's that, yeah. But that's okay. Yeah. Um, we've... There's always been that kind of external wanting, wanting recognition. Yeah. I can't deny it. Um, it's, it's not what we do, but people will find us, hopefully, in time. I, I, I don't doubt it at all, actually. Um, th- there is already a ripple you know, amongst my tribe, which is, yep. you know... We should talk about tribes. That could be interesting. Elite. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, see, I, I, I'm not, like... I think there's some shit talked about tribes. I think tribes can be as toxic as they can be freeing. I think they can be as, 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 as uh, what's the word, elitist as they can be accepting. It all, it all depends how they're, how they're managed, how they're run, who's the head of that tribe, how, how that person changes. They're a bit like, it's a bit like watching murmurations. You can see a tribe change direction and suddenly everyone's changed direction. Yeah. And you're not certain who made the decision, but someone did. Yeah. Uh, and, and they can be really elitist as well. But when you need friends and when you, when you don't live amongst people, you live in Brighton, you live amongst great people, I'm certain. I live in Leicestershire, there aren't that many people like me. I live, I've got some lovely friends, but there aren't that many people like me, so I seek my tribe in, in other ways. Mm-hmm. And actually the V on the shoe is a way of finding your tribe. It's a way of signalling the kind of person you are. Sure. And you wouldn't go and talk to somebody, but... You know, you have a little nod. I, I dress relatively flamboyantly sometimes, and I walk through Soho and I meet... Sometimes. Some, sometimes. Well, not today, I'm quite... <laughs> quite 
quite calm today. Exactly. Nice new tats. Yes, thank you. Baby tats and Blanders. reminder that life and time is passing. Yeah, it's nice. I love that one. It's, it's my favourite, actually, my current favourite. But I'll pass another dapperly dressed man, generally mm-hmm. man, and we exchange a nod. Mm-hmm. We exchange an acceptance that actually we've got to keep doing this. It's a knowing, it's a a knowing. Um, I would love, if I knew how to be the next rab coat or the next, and I'll say it, high-ute denim jean or uh, Salomon running shoe or, you know, the, 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 the guy that we serve is aged 40 to 55. Obviously, we serve all customers and the woman is probably, you know, five years younger 35 to 50 or whatever um, and they are tribal and they have signifiers and they certainly have a uniform yeah and two or three you know maybe more than that five years ago suddenly that tribe all started wearing rab coats yeah now i don't know who started it apart from rab it was me was it you yeah. you were so cool i had the blue one with the red zip which i don't wear anymore because every fucker's wearing it brilliant so there you go but suddenly everybody wore it and i know that that's part of the ski community and the outdoor community yeah, it was, and it kind yeah. of happened and we moved through movements of cars and we moved through movements of shoes and, and of jeans and of technologies um, i wish that i could find it and my investors wish that i could find it far faster than i can yeah, being authentic to yourself as a brand, um, I think, is really, really important because otherwise you can just become sort of flotsam, jetsam in that. I agree. Movement of 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 tribal sentiment and attraction, right? So that's been the hardest thing for us. Um, you know, we, we we serve a lot of different types of customers, and some of them I can personally identify with. If I were in Lancashire or Yorkshire, from where I came or Brighton, or wherever, I can identify with those people, but I also have consumers and customers and people who love our brand who I don't naturally hang out with or wouldn't naturally meet in normal circumstances. And I have to think about them too. So we have to be incredibly careful. And I think what we're learning is just to be, I can't be Rab or Red Bull or Patagonia or Hyute. I can't mimic those brands. We just have to be authentic to ourselves. Which is why, for example, I, you know, that's why I shoot with Jim now, um, and I've used other great photographers too who I love, and I love their work, but I can't see us using um, very many other photographers than Jim, because for me that's now part of our visual identity. Yeah. His way of seeing is sort of authentic to us. And he, he, he sees through product and he's t- t- to the passion and to the heartbeat of the organisation. Absolutely. He, he is uh, my f- he's an astonishing photographer. There are, there are a handful that I think are incredible. Jim is up there. He's absolutely... Yeah. And he's, I'm one of the nicest, the nicest people. And, and I love this whole idea of like, standing for something bigger than you. You can feel that about, about your shoes and about the way that you talk about your company. Um, and uh, I've got two final questions and I'm going to answer them, ask them in this, this order. Tell me, and I know the answer to this, but people listening won't. Tell me about the name Seven Feet Apart. Railway tracks. Standard gauge railways are six and a half feet approximately apart. And um, there was a broad gauge railway created um, during the Industrial Revolution 
the Great Western Railway um, by a chap called Isambard Kingdom Brunel, to whom um, it's been suggested I am related. You are related. I, I feel that I grew up under his shadow. Um, I was told as a very young child that I was related to Isambard Kingdom Brunel. And whether it's myth, and we've also tried to prove it, and there's a lot of genealogy going on, um, you live under that shadow. I also lived under the shadow of my father and probably most other male figures. What did that do? What did my father do? He's an engineer. So engineering and making stuff um, was a part, I guess, of my DNA. Um, when Brunel made his railway, he did it um, in a way that uh, was more efficient. And efficiency is everything we're trying to do as a business. It's like, okay, let's consume less, but make really fucking cool, yeah. good less, shit. Less for more. Okay. Um, let's definitely do that. Um, because the trucks were seven feet apart, they had a lower centre of gravity, which meant they were more comfortable. They also didn't break down as often. So the whole system was more economic. But also, you know, look at the, what the guy did, Clifton Suspension Bridge... Uh, um, boats, tunnels, the Rotherhide Tunnel, yeah. um, the Great Western Railway. I mean, he created a transportation system, and transportation philosophically obviously created a new culture, both nationally and internationally, allowed people to travel. And when people travel, I think they experience new things and they open their minds, and sure. cultures mix. And we're talking about that nationally or internationally. You know, the Industrial Revolution was everything. Um, particularly in this country, you go to America and you sort of mention it and they don't know anything before sort of 1845 and stuff and they just don't even know who he is. But it's been a huge influence. So that's, that's where the name came from. Um, and I think we hold true to a lot of his values. What I also liked about his stuff was he made beautiful things. Yeah. So he did engineering feats because they had to be done, but he also made things which were beautiful um, I don't know if you know the Box Hill story. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, so but like, for the listeners, so yeah. there's a tunnel um, through Box Hill. Uh, it's about a mile and a half. I'll stand corrected, I'm sure, by some of your listeners. But um, it's about a mile and a half or so long. And it is a myth that uh, was suggested that on the morning of Brunel's birthday, if you stood at one end, you could see the sun rising through the tunnel the other end in a mile and a half of ellipse which from an engineering perspective is incredible imagine the, the imagine the ego that suggests you will build a mile and a half of brick lead clad tunneling such that you can see the sunrise on your own birthday how pretentious allegedly anyway it was sort of perceived to be a myth for many many years and about five years ago i believe um the railway that part of the railway which still runs today was shut uh, for renovations. So on the, e sorry, on the birthday of Brunel, they went, okay, we're going to prove this or disprove it. And sure as shit, the sun did not rise and was not seen at the other end of the tunnel. And then some amazing scientist, engineering dude, went, uh, hang on a minute. In 1973, retrospectively, we dropped the track by four inches or something like this. Had it have not have been, then you would have seen the sun rise through it. Now, for me, whether it's true or not true, that is about somebody engineering. I don't think it was for his own ego. I think it was a celebration of beauty. Yeah. It was to say engineering can be beautiful. Form and function can work together. 
and you can make something that's super efficient but is also a celebration of our ingenuity and our, our mental prowess. And he had to choose a day to do it on because yeah, the sun is any, in a different position. any day, so it's like... He might as well have had his I'll birthday. Have, I'll have my birthday. And, and what I love about this is, is it's something that's really, really deep inside me, is this frustration that we split science and art, we split engineering and beauty apart at one point and we've made them different things and you can't be good at both. The world is best when they're united. Yeah, and, I, and we're sat here in a church, which might deny some aspects of science. And if we had met in a scientific environment, we might be denying some aspects of creation or belief or whatever. And I, but I, I'm kind of I, I love the synergy of those two things, which is why you know we have to make shoes that people desire with their heart, right, and with their eyes. We can justify it from a sustainability perspective and all these other things. People still consume with their eyes. They go, oh, fucking hell, that looks nice. Yeah, yeah. Then they wear them and go, oh, they're really comfortable. And yeah, you're nice guys. Um, that's the way to create successful brands, to accept that you can do art and science at the same time. I guess that's the, the legacy of Brunel. And that's what you do do. Um, and your shoes are beautiful and they are sublimely comfortable. Um, <laughs> but they are. And the way that you're growing the business it feels at the right pace there's no rush it's a calm growth and you are going to be unbelievably successful i can feel it whether you whether you sell out at some point sell out sell on at some point i don't care you'll have done something utterly incredible and my last question and it takes us right back to the beginning you're not running away from something you made that really clear mm -hmm. and i think and, and you're absolutely right are you running to anything yeah yeah, I think so. Um, sufficiency is what I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to get to a point of, and it's not even a word really, enoughness. No, I like that, enoughness. Yeah, let's, let's TM that. Let's run to enoughness. And you're right, because we can't walk there because we don't have time. Well, I, I, I'm 50, and so I'm, I'm a good quarter of the way through my life. We're the same age. And I'm going, okay, I just, I desperately want to get to enough yeah. so that I can just enjoy it. Well, life is a wonderful thing, right? I've, yeah. I've been privileged to make a brand. Um, hopefully there's lots more shoes and lots more brands to build in the future. But I guess that's what I've been running to all my life, which is just to go, it's enough. I love it. I absolutely love it. Matt, it's an utter joy. <laughs> Thanks for having a chat. Oh, no, I love it. I absolutely... <laughs> I, I, I love this podcast because I've got apps. I don't, do, I don't do any research or any prep. I quite like it. I, I just turn up and, and say, tell me about growing up, and it goes from there. And um, We've covered a lot of ground. We, we have, and yet, and yet we've left a lot uncovered, and we can do one another time. Thank you, it's mate. It's been a, a pleasure. Thank you very much. Loved it. Oh, that was fantastic. So I hope you enjoyed that. Um... The whole idea of running, running away, running to, I, it's utterly fascinating. I seem to have spent my entire life running and um, I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. When, as a kid I ran because I loved running and now even you know, when I battle through the injuries that I've, I've kind of picked up along the way, when, I'm, when I have a purple patch and I can get out and run, there's just nothing better, there's nothing freer. Um, and I, I just really love the idea of running to something. Enoughness, brilliant, um, as opposed to away from, from something. 
And anybody that can run ultra marathons has got such massive, massive respect from me. So hopefully there's something in that for you. Hopefully there was something that resonated in some way with where you are. Um, if you've got any comments, please email, email me at mark at thisisapeape.co.uk or um, I think you can actually leave a message on here somewhere. Anyway, we'll work it out. Um, if there's anybody that you would recommend for um, the podcast, uh, let me know. And whatever you're doing for the rest of the day, I, I hope you enjoy it. Cheers.